0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese, where cheesemakers have been making award-winning cheese for generations. Go to wisconsincheese.com to order directly from Wisconsin Dairies to your home. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, We at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support. More than ever, to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org/slash/donate.
2: Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief, with your hosts Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto. Hey, folks, um, how are you? We have been off for the past two weeks as we stand in solidarity. With the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, we have been protesting and learning and listening and observing and trying to participate in whatever way we can. Um, We urge you to uh, listen to the plethora of amazing black leaders in the community and activists who are speaking out about this movement and who have the knowledge and information that they are generous enough to be sharing uh, with the whole country Um, we are listening we are taking our cues from them and we hope that you are too and we urge you to get involved in whatever way that you can because this is long overdue and it is, as far as I'm concerned I guess, the most important moment in our country's history and It can be difficult to know how to get involved or what your place is or what to say. Uh, I think the most important thing is to understand before you do try to maybe say something publicly or, you know, get get involved is just to think about your motivations and to think about your privilege as a white person, if you are a white listener Um, and to resist the urge to. Gentrify the movement and make it about you and then also be supportive and use your money and your time and your body to get involved in whatever way you can because, um, this is really, it's, it's sounds ridiculous to even say it's really important. It's everything. It's people's lives and livelihoods and we have this great opportunity at this moment to be able to make a shift. You know, we had, this is not any kind of new information or idea, but we had this wild situation with coronavirus shutting everything down and this opportunity to really, as a country, collectively be able to pay more attention than we normally do, which is horrifying that we don't pay attention uh, to people's livelihoods and lives. And... um, but you know we have the time now and it is happening and it is important and we really urge you to be involved in whatever way you can and if that means just beginning with educating yourselves about things that you may not understand um maybe the next step is donating some money perhaps you're compelled to go to a protest i realize that that is difficult for some folks given that there is a deadly virus circulating and that's definitely real um but whatever way you get involved please do um your participation matters very much. Um, today on the show, we have a wonderful, wonderful guest, uh, Millicent Soros. Millicent is um, just like a lovely, lovely human who I was felt lucky enough to have met through friends on the internet. Actually, we've never met in public, but um, she's incredible and. She is the rescue food coordinator at the largest emergency food provider in Brooklyn, and it is called uh, Brooklyn St. John's, I'm sorry, pardon me, it is called St. John's Bread and Life. Um, Millicent has worked in the restaurant industry since moving to New York in 2005. Um, We talk about the death of her dad when she was in college. We talk about growing up uh, as a Greek American. We talk about old bars. Our conversation was fascinating and I really enjoyed speaking with her. She has such a wonderful and unique perspective. Um, I also just want to mention as a note that we recorded this episode on the first day of protests that happened here in New York city. Um, so that was over three weeks ago now. And, uh, I'm mentioning it because we don't talk about what, what is now currently going on in our world with the Black Lives Matter movement very much in the episode. if I I, I actually don't think we really touch on it at all. Um, and I wanted to mention that this was three weeks ago, so that you don't think it's strange that we don't talk about it. Um, so yeah, I I love talking to Millicent. She is a, an activist. She has a huge heart. Um, she's brilliant. And I really, I really can't say how much I love talking to her. We both did. It was great. Um, Please also support St. John's Bread and Life um, if you can via donation. They're doing wonderful things for the community. And yeah, I hope that you all are staying safe out there. We are also including links to different um, organizations that we think are important right now that are kind of in line with mental health. Um, so you can go ahead over to our Instagram at processing podcast and check out some of the different organizations that we have found that seem to be fitting, uh, with the black lives matter movement and mental health. Uh, and we urge you to, uh, donate to those causes. Um, and also please share, you know, if you guys have things, uh, different organizations that you are supporting, that you feel like we should know about, please reach out to us. Um, we also would love to hear from you, uh, listener letters. If you are interested in being a guest on Processing, we would love to hear from you. And this is a very highly charged time. Um, it is an emotional time and particularly a hundredfold for Black people in this country. And we just want to let you know that we are here for you. If you just want to kind of chat or find a resource to get some, mental health, uh, help, or just some emotional support, please reach out to us. We'd be happy to try to point you in the right direction. And, um, I hope that everyone out there is staying active, um, the best that they can and that everyone is staying safe from coronavirus and trying to take care of their own mental health, because this is a, like I said, it's a highly charged time, but thank you everyone for tuning in. And we really look forward to coming back with a new episode next week. And we love you very much. And thanks for listening. Please enjoy our talk with Millicent. Millsen, no, you are from Baltimore, Maryland, which is interesting. It's actually a place I've not spent much time. What was it? What was it like growing up in Baltimore?
3: Well, we lived um, north. We lived in Baltimore County. I was born in Baltimore City, and I mean, I grew up. My my father's parents had immigrated from Greece in the in the twenties, and they and there's a huge Greek population in, in Towson and in Baltimore. And so they ended up going there because my grandfather's sister lived there. And so they opened a restaurant when Prohibition ended in 1934. And like, so that was a big part of my life. Yeah. So Baltimore is full of Greeks and um, we grew up, we grew up like in the, we called it the, the store, but also my mom's, my mom had grown up on a farm. And so we spent time there. Um, it was a dairy farm oh, wow. and then my mom left my dad when I was 10 so we I always had this like dichotomy and we moved to the farm between the bar and the farm um, and then Baltimore's I don't know Baltimore's like aii I haven't lived in Baltimore for so long that it's it's kind of a part of me but it's not you know like I watched all the John Waters movies growing up, you know, like really freaky Baltimore stuff, going to like punk shows and kind of finding all the all the like weird places to go that you're always craving as a kid, especially if you live in the county. Um, It's. I mean, The Wire. Have you ever watched The Wire?
2: I have definitely watched The Wire. Yeah, that's like pretty much the only information. The wire's I real.
3: The wire's yeah. totally real.
2: <laughs> so I've heard from people that are from Baltimore, and that's a very intense. Uh, that's an intense situation.
3: Intense. Yeah, and I feel like right now, you know, like over the years, I've, you know, like in Baltimore. Baltimore is over. It's a majority African American population, and most of the children grow up in poverty. And like, what other cities are like that in this country? Detroit, New Orleans, like major uh, cities with majority African-American populations. And that is something, I mean, that's just telling of our country, you know.
4: Absolutely. Millicent, did I, did I hear you say that you, at some point, your mom left the family?
3: My mom left my dad. My mom's not Greek. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of, we were, so part of us growing up there was that you know, for me and my sisters, I have two older sisters, they're twins, is that we weren't totally Greek and like Mm -hmm. Greek Americans. And my mom left my dad and my dad was the only male in the family. And so that's not really, that's not really what you're supposed to do. Um, and she took us and took, you know, like we left the home. Mm -hmm. So that was, That was major. Like, you know, how your life is split up into like befores and afters. Like we're definitely living in a before and after period right now. And I think that when someone in your life passes, that's a before and after. And also Mm -hmm. that moment was definitely a before and after. Of
4: course. So you stayed with your mom. Did you go back and forth with your dad and your mom? Well, my dad
3: had, he had joint custody, but like every other weekend. So we would go and see him. But also my sisters and I were, becoming teenage girls. I mean, is there anything worse to be or to witness in the world than a teenage girl? I don't think so.
2: Um, that's that's very, very true. Um, but you had t- you touched on this briefly, but um, I know a little bit more only from what you shared with us before the interview. You mentioned the bar, but uh, just so our listeners know, you're family owned a restaurant called Soros's restaurant, right? After the, you know, your grandparents opened after prohibition and your family continued to run it until you were in your teens, correct?
3: Yes. And when my Papu, my grandfather died, my dad just, you know, as is the way as the only male, like it was his, it was his to run whether or not he wanted it. Right. So he ran it, but actually his mother really, she did, you know, she did all the heavy lifting every day Mm. and she lived above it you know, they owned the building and she lived in an apartment above it where they had raised their family. So, so we, so then it became Sources Saloon, like in the late sixties. So that's where we spent time. And that's where the whole family, like I grew up in a bar, like our entire family would meet there. Um, you know, it was just, that's my ya-ya would make like, homemade avocado soup and also like frozen yeah. burgers because there was a flat top behind the bar cool.
2: <laughs> I love that I love that like and I love that about just before the show started uh, we were chatting about Greek diners in general and that like you know I don't know it from a familial level because I'm not Greek um, but there is something so special about the like kind of Greek American food that definitely we're very used to being from long island because there's a ton of that there when you talk about like frozen burgers and then like this really beautiful soup and all the like the avocado lemono, and all the like traditional greek recipes it is this very interesting like food mishmash that i don't know exists a lot of other places
3: (laughs) well i have old menus and like there's everything on them and also greek and i feel like that is very that's people being like you want to be all things to all people you're like everybody loves a hamburger but also, check out this moussaka we have that you know is the most homemade thing. Right, right, and
2: yeah, with especially with immigrant culture, right? Like, and people having to come here and have their own recipes from where they came from, and then try to placate the you know American palate with these it things. Is. And yeah, and
3: it's it's so good. I mean, I love a diner. You know, like my cousin's family he was related by marriage. His family owned a diner, the double T diner that actually the movie diner is filmed in. And that was where my parents had like one of their first dates. And he was just, he was always like, he loved the action, you know, like he loved the action of the work. And, you know, recently, you know, when, uh, what I found out recently from one of my uncles was that and I think this is probably where the, you know, you go to a business and you see all these dollar bills, people hang up their dollar bills, their first, the first money right. that they made. And for Greek immigrants, um, if they opened a business because they were uneducated, but they knew how to work and they knew how to cook, they'd open a business and people from their island or, you know, who lived in the same area would give them dollars
4: <laughs>
3: as their, you know, as like a goodwill.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's uh it's interesting. All everyone has these their own traditions. Oddly, I was reading the other day for my other podcast about like different traditions and like why people throw certain things at people when they get married. <laughs> and like in the same vein, it's just like so interesting that every culture kind of has like, well, this is my good luck thing and that but yeah, I mean for prosperity and, and how what how did it work out? Was it a prosperous business? The I mean, Sources
3: restaurant was like legendary in Baltimore County, because it was in Towson, that's the county seat. And at this, um, you know, three major roads, York road, uh, that runs from Baltimore city to York, Pennsylvania, Joppa road, Delaney Valley road. And it's where, and there were also, there's also three colleges around there. So it was a really big deal for a very long time. And people used to, um, like college students would hang out there. Professionals would hang out there. Mm -hmm. Um, Maya was like a mother figure to a lot of people. People called her like mom source. She ended up being Sparrow Agnew's Greek translator because he came up through Baltimore County politics. What?
2: That's amazing.
3: So so she she was his translator for Greeks. Wow. That ended real poorly because (laughs) the Agnews were supposed to go to my cousin's wedding. The same cousin who had the diner, my cousin Pam and Jimmy got married. And then they were all set for them and they had set aside, he was in the white house and they set aside, you know, like a big table for them and, you know, like answered all the secret service questions. And my mom was driving my Yaya around cause she would be a good daughter-in-law and like take her grocery shopping. And, and the Agnews or their person called and was like, we can't tell you why, but they can't come to the wedding. And it was like a week before the wedding. And, and, uh, Yaya was like, why, why? And they're like, we can't tell you. And then on the news, they're like, Spiro Agnew has pled no contest. And that, was, that wasn't even Watergate. That was before Watergate, but that was about a bunch of fraud and fraud that he had been doing since she had been translating and representing oh. him
2: oh, in my Baltimore God. County. So what? this is she, a crazy story. <laughs>
3: so she asked my mom, she was like, Sally, what does this mean? And my mom was like, it means that he's guilty. And when she died and we were cleaning out her apartment because she lived above the bar, she had like the classic vanity that you sit at. And on the bottom right desk, bottom right vanity drawer was a picture of the Agnews with the white house seal of approval on it, autographed to her face down in the drawer. Cause oh. they were dead to her. Oh <laughs> <my God.
2: laughs> That's an amazing story. Yeah. God. So unfortunately you're, Dad passed away at when you were eighteen, right? And I, I'm just interested, obviously, to know what that was like. But then also being such a part of the family business was, such, was was such a big part of your life and your gathering place in your family. Like, what? How did those two kind of intertwine with each other? That feeling of like, you know, not only just losing your dad, but also like, how? What effect did that have on the business and and such?
3: I mean, it was so. Um, it was. I don't, I mean, every word is a cliche. Um, You know, my dad died right before Christmas. And the last time I had seen him, I'd come back. I was in my freshman year at college in Oberlin and i come back for Thanksgiving and I saw him and then I didn't see him again that weekend. And I went back to school and then he was sick and then in the ICU. And so for like two weeks he was sick or he was dying. He was just dying. He wasn't even sick. And I came back and there was all this, there was just a lot of stuff. Like my dad had already been in the process of selling the bar to the group, which is a woman and her husband and her dad, who eventually ended up buying it from us. Hmm. Because my father wasn't married to my mother, he also had no will. So my sisters and I inherited the bar because it was in his name, but we were too young to run it. Um, There was a lot of things financially fraught about it and also like a lot of very strange ownership issues you know because my dad has three sisters and everyone grew up there you know they all have kids everyone feels an ownership about it Mm -hmm. um and i think that for me and my sisters everyone everyone was hurt and everyone uh I don't know. Like it was, it wasn't great. It wasn't great at all. Like I didn't feel, I know that for me and my sisters, because my mom did leave my dad and this happened like eight years later that we felt left out, you know, Um, and that we weren't, and that, you know, like just sometimes, you know, sometimes in death, like really bad things happen in families and Uh people say things that are awful and that was like that way for a couple of years. But mm-hmm. the task at hand was to continue selling the place because it was the only asset that my father had and there was a buyer lined up, but also because nobody wanted us to run a bar and nobody would co-sign a liquor license for us. Right. And then to clean out this bar that people have, that generations had grown up in. And my dad was also kind of a hoarder. So there was a lot and there was just so much alcohol all the time. You know, (laughs) there's, there's so much. Um, And there were, you know, we had the night before his funeral, there was a big, everyone was at the bar drinking. um, And then the day of the funeral, every, all the pallbearers looked like they were going to vomit. And then the wake was held (laughs) at the bar, you know, (laughs) like everything was held there. And then before we sold it, it was a series of just cleaning it Mm. and taking care of all of these decades of accumulation. Um, And, you know, like I had left to go to college in Ohio. I went to a liberal arts college, Oberlin College, because, Mm -hmm. because I just wanted to escape also all of that, you know, like familiar obligation. You know, my family's not terribly like political or artistic or anything like that. And especially as an 18 year old, you're just like, get me out of this. So, so I felt far away from it, but, and it was hard to negotiate all of those feelings, Yeah.
4: Yeah, but it
3: was also a place where, you know, the woman who bought it, it stayed Sources Saloon until she sold it. And so at least it was a giant talisman to walk inside of and still feel some sort of connection with.
2: Right. It wasn't like ripped down to become like a parking lot or a, you know, no market or something no it's
3: uh, yeah it still had the same ceilings there's one ceiling there was like one ceiling tile that had a bullet hole in it from when a cop shot something down you know that my dad had left up there and like you know like like there was (laughs) still some sort of connection and you know like with death and grief it's all like gestures of closure and gestures of connection
4: yeah. absolutely. Millicent, can I ask you did your dad was he sick or did he die suddenly or what was the nature of his dying
3: he died you know he wasn't terribly healthy he was a very bad diabetic and he was 62 and you know I called him from college his birthday was in October and I called him from college to wish him happy birthday and he's like it won't be long soon and like that's oh, wow. he I mean yeah
2: People it's no sometimes
3: I think they know, you know, what happened was that he didn't show up for work and one of his bartenders went to go look for him in his house and he was passed out on his bed and he had, he had an ulcer or some like massive hemorrhage and hadn't taken care of it and had proceeded to like eliminate like 75% of the blood from his body without oh going God. to see a doctor. And so oh. he was, I mean, I just sort of consider that he that he took his own life, you know, and he was lying on a gun, but I think he had passed out before he could do it. So yeah. everything in his body then broke down. Yeah.
4: I imagine you know, that might've been his pride, you know, to have had the gun there. I don't know how you feel about that, but you know, maybe I think it was- he just,
3: he just didn't want to live anymore. Yeah. You know, yeah. he was, he was living such an isolated life and mm. he'd work at the bar and he'd go home. And we also found out that like, You know, like in the ICU, they're like, well, he has one kidney because he had cancer. He has diabetes. His heart's not great or something. And then someone's like, but at least his liver. And they're like, oh, no, your father has cirrhosis of the liver. And so none of us had known that he was drinking all the time. But how would we know? Because his hours, he was living in lost time. You know, he was living in the hours of like 4 p.m. to 4 a.m.
2: Very interesting way of putting it, living in the yeah. hours of lost time. I, it's very eloquent and very true. My dad was similar. I mean, he wasn't doing that. My dad passed away a couple of years ago and he was also just so unhealthy. I mean, he had he had cancer, but also he was like really overweight and like, yeah, yeah. He, he survived in this weird like span of time overnight because he would like sleep during the day. And like, mm-hmm. so you can never quite tell how he was doing. And I, I wonder, I don't know. I think there's a... a, a, a to some effect, to some extent, perhaps, and something I don't know for sure, but I could speculate upon is that there's a certain shame to your body unraveling like that.
4: Yeah. That's what I meant by pride. I think, you know, the the shame of it. Yeah.
3: And I think, you know, my father had had different illnesses, like he had kidney cancer. And so he lost a kidney. His father was a very bad diabetic and my father was a bad diabetic. And, um, he always took pride that he had like some sort of control of things in a certain way, but, but there was something, he couldn't do the work after a certain surgery to like get it back, you know, to like get his health back. He always took pride in not drinking, except when he was, we, you know, he had a place at the beach and that's, he had friends who owned bars and would like, you know, tie one on, but he was like, this is the only place where I do that. You know? And I think that, Right. I think he just became really isolated. And that was also part of the family issues where his, his family, my family were like, you girls didn't care about your father. Like when, when, like, right when he died, they blamed us. And it was like, we can't, we didn't kill him, you know? Absolutely
2: not. And also like the struggle to be able to know a, to know what people need at the end of their life is so hard at any age and to be able to bring yourself to that point where you can even be present is so difficult it's such an admission of like the scariest thing so to think that as an 18 year old kid that you're you're supposed to have that kind of uh those capabilities just they're not just built in and mm-hmm. they're it's yeah. but also you had
4: another job which was to be 18 and to be in college and to you know Absolutely. you and your kids yeah. just were a turning point of your life
3: Yeah. I mean, it was, it was an intense struggle and we're, I'm on good terms with the family now. Like, um, but I don't, I don't know. They just, they blamed us for a lot of things. And then I think that they also didn't know that he was so financially messed up. Like he died like over a quarter of a million dollars in debt. Mm -hmm. So they just, they thought that we wanted things that didn't that weren't there like money right right you know like sometimes sometimes death brings out such terrible things of families and it's just because that's where the
2: hurt comes out
4: you know exactly i
2: agree the powerlessness too i think sometimes from generation to generation in certain you know cultures um there's this like each generation has maybe a little bit more freedom the freedom to go to college whereas like maybe your mother had to like stay home and work and her mother had to like stay you know what I mean so like I'm wondering if like being their generation behind you being like well when we were your age we didn't have the opportunities to like not care or you know not take care of the parents we didn't have an opportunity to go to Oberlin College and study you know and be in a liberal arts school and study writing like do you think there was um any sense of like resentment on their end. Oh well. my
3: God, my family, there's still people dealing in resentment in my family because <laughs> of that. And I think that's also like people keep score and it's because keeping score is what our society teaches people to do. And when you're hurt, you like totally do that. And you, and the thing with family that's so messed up, but also like, like you can't escape them. <laughs> They're yeah. there all the time. Um Is that, it's a lifetime of keeping score. Yeah. Like there's a, one of my dad's sisters, um, she lost two of her children within a span of 13 months. Oh. And one of them, they knew that he was sick. She had four children. His name was Michael and he had leukemia. And I don't remember if he died first or his sister died first, but his sister Molly died from SIDS. And that, I feel like that cast a pall over, Everything,
4: yeah, of course, to this day, to this day, um, the the bitterness. You know, I I say we as people we either inies or outies, like belly buttons. And some yeah. people, when they're hurting and they're in pain, they turn it inward, and it really comes out inside of themselves. And other people are outward; they turn it out. And so, you know, resentment and keeping tolls of things. It's you know, some people just take it out on other people and blame. Yeah, and I don't.
3: And it wasn't my aunt, but my cousins. There's something that is really intense about them. Um, And I think that's part of it. And also, you know, like those are the same cousins who, when my dad died, they kept working at the bar so we could make the cash so we could pay off the grave diggers at the Greek Orthodox cemetery. Mm -hmm. You had to pay them in cash. So they kept the bar open through through Christmas to make the money.
2: Oh, that's amazing. Well, I have a, I'm curious because um I know that you've worked you came to work in restaurants for a long time and um mostly in the kitchen. Correct. Did you work behind the bar ever? No. Okay. But I mean it's still part of the same kind of situation being in a restaurant or a bar. It's a similar kind of thing. Did you ever like think at the time when you were growing up in your family's bar that like being in the service industry was something that you wanted to do when you Got to be that age
3: no i didn't I didn't have thoughts like that um yeah. I think that I've always just had food as a job, and and I've been willing to do the work and so, like as a teenager, it was always my job, even if it was like frying chicken at the royal farm store um. Right. Or working at a cafe in college and then no I never thought I never considered that but it was never anything that I didn't want I had no vision of what the future held
2: right you, you know mean, I asked because neither did I and my parents were both in the food business Bobby before she was a psychotherapist and my dad um, owned a business called the love and oven and you know people always kind of ask me as I was like growing up. And I had industry jobs, like pizza delivery girl, working at pizza shops, delis, and all kinds of things like that as a bus girl, all the, all the jobs you could do growing up in food. Um, and I never thought I would kind of get into it in a more professional way. And then when I ended up doing it, I just had this thought when I was reading about your history that like it was something I never, it, it just never felt like, Oh, I want to do this because my parents did it. But what I, what I realized for myself and I'm wondering if you ever drew this parallel Um, is that restaurant people and bar people are like for lack of a better way of putting it like good people even if they're bad on the outside (laughs) they're good on the inside and they have good hearts and they care for each other and they when you're talking about your cousins you know working to get the money for your dad to have his grave dug like you know even though your family gave you a fucking hard time and it was it was drama like I don't know I, I wonder if that like goodness. Well, thanks for, thanks for putting that in a different light for me. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that goodness though, and that like the, that kind of, um, that interesting line between goodness and like craziness almost that a lot of people who work in restaurants and bars have, um, I don't know. Do you feel like that's I think that you're
3: consistently forced into a collective effort, mm-hmm. right? That's, yeah. And, and I think that I don't know. I mean, people have such weird concepts of like taking care of people or whatever, but I mean, I mean, I've been thinking about, I'm like food and grief, food and grief. And I'm like, I don't have a lot to say about food and grief necessarily, but I have a lot to say about walking into a bar and you just order a drink and somebody knows that you need it and you sit there and there's a comfort in that. And I'm not even talking about like a psychic bartender who's like what can I do for you? You know, are you, you know, like any stereotype yeah. like that, but I think it's, maybe it's less self-centered. Like you're not always thinking about yourself because you just have to do things that involve other people. Um, it's, it's just part of the nature, you know?
2: Yeah. I wondered yesterday and I just had this like passing thought. Cause I was talking to a friend about codependency. And I wonder if it would have been a little bit. <laughs> a
4: little light <laughs> conversation.
2: Yeah, I'm just having a light, tiny, like we had some tea. We're talking about codependency. No big deal. It was fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, it, was interesting I all, it also
3: feels like it's muscle memory. Like, if you work in a kitchen, if you work in a bar or the front of the house, your entire life is about muscle memory. And so there's got to be some sort of notion of uh, an emotional. Muscle memory, too,
4: yeah, yeah I yeah. also think it's like a key to spirit, like different things create spirit as we're growing up, and mm-hmm. it's possible that your the restaurant just had a lot of spirit and it became part of you, you know, even though right, even though it wasn't necessarily you thought you were going to work in a restaurant or do food or oh think, my god, yeah, I mean, I moved here
3: over fifteen years ago and I lived in Chicago, and I didn't work in food there. I worked in music and I helped a friend open a place and then. Was doing this and my mom was so bummed, and then she talked to uh, Helen Karangelin, like a Greek lady, who uh, <laughs> owns the Kent Lounge that's across the street from uh, Sources. And this was, I think, her husband had died, and my mom went to the wake, and she was, she was like, Millicent works in a restaurant, and you know, everyone in my family is like, oh, she went to this liberal arts school that cost so much money, and now <laughs> right. she's just like, yeah, yeah, working in a kitchen. And, uh, and Helen Carangelin was like, it's in her blood. (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) Helen Carangelin. That's an amazing, that's just like the classic neighbor name.
4: Helen (laughs) (laughs) Carangelin.
2: Helen Carangelin. Um, so you, you had said that, you know, um, you would go to the Soros's saloon even after it changed hands and that you could feel your dad there and connect with him even after he passed and after it changed hands, um, where do you, now that it's gone, it, you, you, they sold it a couple of years ago, right?
3: Well, the woman who owns it, she just sold it like this past fall. And so I haven't even been there. I know that it's been redone, but it's kind of dead to me, but I didn't know that I would miss losing it again. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. um, I don't go anywhere. You know, it was, that was 28 years ago so there's a different relationship and what's curious about life is like the things that used to haunt me don't haunt me anymore as much there's new things that haunt me but that doesn't haunt me and that's you know that really took its toll for a very long time and I didn't have the emotional um I didn't understand that it did you know I didn't understand grieving or taking time or anything like that i just um, i didn't know that it had really fucked me up
2: yeah so um, Only in
4: retrospect in other words you're saying
3: only in retrospect yeah. and i think that you know because when you're in it and also you know i was raised by a single mom who was really tough and raised three kids and like has definitely had her definitely had very tough times. And like, there's a certain point where when you're in it, you can't like, I understand differently now that vulnerability is not weakness and that it's important and all of these things. And I understand so much more about grieving, but then it was just about, don't let anyone see that you're hurt, suck it up. Mm -hmm. And it's not that big a deal. It's not like I would, I would always have this, uh, like right when after it had happened i had this um correlation because i was i was like it's not like it's the holocaust it's not a tragedy your dad right. died you know and so i would try to uh i don't i, I don't have the words for what that is bobby is that what negotiating
4: bobby, are, <laughs> <laughs> trying i would to, for... to say the same thing like bobby what are we talking about here what is this <laughs> it sounds like you were also like in a way lessening the importance of your feelings oh my god yes yeah. because
3: Because, yeah, if you're, if you've been raised, like, if you've been raised in your worker, like, I don't know, I think that I wasn't raised to believe that my feelings were important, right? You know, I was
2: tough. And so you have to stay tough. Totally. Bobby, a question. Is that why do, psychologically speaking, though, like, why do people do that? Is it like a defense mechanism? Is it a way of protecting? Like, is it the turtle kind of thing?
4: Like, what is it? Well, I think it's a few things. I think there's family and cultural influences that tell us certain messages, like Millicent was saying, about be tough, you don't express your feelings, we don't want to, you know, we don't show that, you know, secrets, uh, what we hide. So that's part of it. And then, you know, there is a way, Zara mentioned the turtle, because there's something I call the turtle principle, where when things are overwhelming in grief, we put a protective layer on because we can't handle it all at once. We just can't. So we grieve our whole lives. So we can't grieve all at once. And for different people, they sometimes have to delay it. It's not culturally or familial um, appropriate and there's no support. So, but we have our whole lives to grieve. So it can be 28 years and you can still be grieving a parent or a loved one. Does that make sense? For sure, oh, it
3: totally makes sense. And I'm like, my mom's retired now and I'm trying to get her to grieve for various things in her life. Because I think that when you just keep on waking up every day and going to work and doing everything and keeping it together, you worry that the day that you don't do it, that you'll just keep not doing it and that Mm -hmm. you'll break and never get back. Right. And I think that there's certain, you know, I don't, I mean, that's just the family I was raised in, that if you did that, you're not going back. Like I went back, my dad died on December 13th. I took extensions on all of my papers and tests. And I went back to Oberlin college. Like the semester probably started at the end of January or the beginning of February. But I went back to Oberlin college and took all of, wrote the papers, took the exams and then started a new semester. And I remember this fucking guy, uh, a professor, of course he was a formalist, you know, and he had a Faulkner class and he was like, well, something. And he was older than my dad too. And he was like, well, something, t- something very bad happened, but now it's time to move on and you need to get this paper into me. And I was like, all right. What? Um, I think I tried to like bribe someone I knew to tell me how people were related to each other and Faulkner's the bear with like <laughs> all this top shelf liquor I had brought back from the bar to college. Uh-huh. I was like, okay, but what about this bottle of Tangerine? He's like, that is cheating. And I was like, this
1: is very convoluted, and I don't have brain space for that. <laughs> but
4: yeah, you know, in some ways, it's both helpful and obviously detrimental when somebody is urging you and pushing you and, and telling you, you know, focus in, don't that won't let yourself, you know, get off track. Because in some don't... ways, after loss, we have to get off track, we have no choice. And then at the same time, it's helpful to stay on track and not get too far off track.
2: It depends. It's like one of those things that I think you're right, Mom. But I think it's just like all in the. It's in the. Sub, it's almost the way you want to do that a bit subversively. Like you know, it's like, oh well, it would be great for you if your pa You know, your paper came out well. I don't know. I'm not like giving a good example, but I think just telling somebody to get over it obviously is a. Uh, is a, and I
3: think, and I think for me, like I was there on a scholarship and financial aid, and it's just like you have to finish this because this is a really expensive place, Right. you know? And I think for some people for work, that's part of it. And also, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm just really, I'm, it's interesting because like three years ago, maybe I read Joan Didion's, the year of magical thinking. Mm-hmm. Read and articles. I found it. I don't know how you guys feel about mm-hmm. it or if you've read it, but I just yeah. found her describing grieving to be cool. I really welcomed it. Um, mm-hmm. And I was, I really welcomed it because it was in a form that was just like, discusses it as sort of the surrealness of it. And like this new world that you're entering.
2: Um, Absolutely. I felt the same way when I, I read it this summer too. And I I agree.
3: And yeah. And it's, I was talking to my friend and I, my friend, just her son died like two months ago now mm. and everything that she was saying to me. And I was like, I have a book for you to read and we're right. not going to read it right now. But I was like, you were in a crazy place. And she's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to therapy and I'm going to a group. And when yeah. am I going to be done with this? And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and like, like, but it was, there's something about it also. I mean, Joan Didion's a great writer, like being able to write about something in such a kind of like swirling chaotic manner. And also with it's, I don't know. Like, but it was the first time I read anything that talked about grief in such a disruptive manner.
4: Yeah. Like my mom and
3: I have talked about grieving throughout our entire lives. And she's like, she's such a self-help person. She's like, well, I've got some books and I'm just really going to try to figure this out. And I'm like, Oh God, in
4: my head, I'm going to try to figure it out in my head. <laughs>
2: yeah. No, it, it is. It's, it is such a weird experience. And I've said this before, but I do think also like, you know, it's such a, it's such a, just, it's such a terrible feeling. It's indescribable. It's just, you know, your stomach is squoze your heart's shrunk. You want it to be different. It's like, you know, it's gutting. And we want to escape from that, obviously, right? Like we do anything to escape. And at the same time, when you're really in deep grief, you can't escape it whatsoever, no matter how hard you, but you try. you know what you I could... talk
4: about? What I think you can do is try to ground yourself in it. Because if, you know, it's very hard to be in a place where you're feeling that deeply and there isn't any grounding or there isn't any parameters. So that how would you do that? Well, you ground it, um, certainly, in your, you know, you know, for people to make sure that they stay in their body or they remember to breathe or they, you know, remember to connect with people or they remember some of the things that they love to do, you know, like, so it's just grounding yourself in it because otherwise it's a bottomless place. It's such a bottomless place. I don't fully agree. I mean, I
2: hear what you're saying and I think it's certainly good to suggest to our listeners to be as grounded as possible, but I guess I was on track to say something different, which was that I... I don't know if it's just because of my certain like sensibility of being a little bit dark, but like there is something for me when I was in deep grief about my dad and at this like very broken place in my life. And I'm not sure, Melissa, if you've ever felt like this, because I know as you went on to say. You oh know, my God. Like, yes. Yes, I experience have. experienced A lot of <laughs> grief is that like there's something for me that about the bottom, about that like bottom place when you're just like, I'm I'm just going to stay here for a minute. I'm just going to like be in this like chaos for a minute, this like absolute insane chaos for just a minute. And maybe hopefully not too long, because you are correct, mom, of course, we'd never want to encourage people to be like, just stay in chaos forever. Your life's over when someone dies. Like that's not the right message at all. But um, I feel like there's so much to learn in that little, in whatever time you spend there.
3: I think you have to go there. And this is, I told you that I would learned how to grieve when my dog died. And she mm. was like, I mean, I like, she was my soulmate, you know, and my companion and she died. And like, and also because I hadn't lived with anyone who I'd lost every day. You know, I didn't live with my dad for eight years before he yeah. died. And, and this was someone who I'd lived with every day. And like, I finally understood like, You have to go there. You have to let the, if you can, you know, obviously not if you're driving somewhere or, or like giving a presentation or like suck it up and get up, you know, but like you have to go there because when you go there and it's gut wrenching and it's, it hurts so much because it's sheer loss, then eventually it turns and it becomes, it can become memory and it can become something. It takes you somewhere. At first, it's like a really dark, deep roller coaster that only goes down. And then I think that it, if you give into it, it, it lets over time and light, it lets the lightness happen. Of course. But, but also there's the part of grieving which sucks, which is when it's not crippling you anymore. And then you feel the guilt over that and you're not devastated on the person's birthday or death day or, you right. know, like, and that's so that like... Healing is you feel like it's betrayal.
4: Yeah. Well, one of the ways I describe that is that in the beginning, our grief is our continued relationship with the person that died, but over time, we develop an internal relationship. So, what you're mm-hmm. talking about, the guilt is of giving up, you know, for moments the grief, which is an interim relationship after they die. I think that after that, it becomes very internal. And Zara, you know, we've talked about that, how. You can feel the person that you love inside of you. You talk to them. You think about them all the time. You relate to them. You still learn from them. Um, So that's the internal relationship where you don't have to feel guilty in being in life. So in the beginning, we're just grieving. Over time, Mm -hmm. we begin to learn to live with grief. And it's in that process of living with grief that we develop and hopefully develop an internal relationship.
3: Yeah. And, And I also think, and this is like, in the year of magical thinking didion puts this really well where she's like for the first year you always have a reference point of you know the our concept of time is 12 months is a year of where you were a year before with that person Right, right yeah and then it and then it changes because you've then you've lived a year without that and and there's moments where it's i don't know the word part of me almost said delicious and that's gross, but there's moments where it's, um, like you don't want to let that feeling go of going there, Zara, like what you were talking about, like going somewhere dark because you, that's the only way you can get it. You know, um, it's, it's funny, like two years ago. So I, when I went back to college, there's two things recently that have happened. Um, you know, because also I was in my freshman year of college and like people were like living their lives and like enjoying things and meeting, making friends and stuff like that. And here I am just bummer mountain. And, and I remember that Diamond Galas who's like this really intense singer was playing at Finney Chapel on, uh Valentine's day. And she's, she was playing plague mass. And she had played that it was for her brother who died from AIDS and check her out. She is very intense and amazing. And I saw her a couple of years ago in Harlem in a church. And up until that point, like I saw her two or three years ago, I was still kicking myself for missing that show and how lame that was. And then finally, like when I was 45, I was like, your
2: father had died two months and one day earlier <laughs> yeah you didn't course. feel like going and it took you all that time right like 20 27 no, years to be able to. i had to, no to, forgiveness like, for myself that was okay that you admit that
3: and then yeah like i had no forgiveness for myself that somehow i didn't see this amazing performance yeah because i didn't even understand where i was
2: yeah and, i yeah i those those feelings i have i have a you know my dad when he passed away i uh I don't know. I mean, I guess it's about like, that's, that just brings to me the reason I was going to tell this next story is it just like hit this place of feeling like you were either, I don't know, too weak to do things or whatever. And, and then finally, like I always beat myself up because I didn't go see my dad's body in the hospital after he died. I got the call that he died and I didn't go and see his body. I accidentally walked into the room cause he, they said he wasn't there and I saw his hand. And it was dead, and I ran away and I you know I hate that I do that, and then I like have beat myself up for a couple of years about it, like why did you run away? Why didn't you go in and just sit for a while and then I'm like, you know what? I was just reacting, I was just living, you know, I just did my best that yeah. I could do. And, absolutely but like you know it's so we it's easy to kind of like distract from I think the larger feeling, which is just that it's like an empty space that it's so hard to ever fill again and we can, I think, sometimes use these things to beat ourselves up about you know, why did I do that? And then the reality it's, it's not about that. It doesn't it's matter. totally not about that. Yeah.
4: yeah. And I say it a little differently, which is that it's all about the powerlessness, too. So mm. when we're powerless, yeah. we try to blame ourselves or others. know, It's really mm. the powerlessness, <gasps> though. That's true, Bobby. That's a really yeah. good Bobby.
3: Well, so for you guys and Bobby, it's your ex-husband passing and Zari, your father, like Is this, I don't know, it's got to be, I can't, I know you can't answer this question. I just think of like, you know, for when my dad died, my mom, what she tried to do is just protect us as much as possible. And it took like 10 years for my dad's estate to be settled. He didn't have, he didn't have a will, but my sisters and I inherited everything and we had to take it because otherwise we would have lost the bar. That was like this family legacy thing. Yeah. You know, he had a lot of sketchy financial dealings. Like we were worried about who was going to like come out of the woodwork and be like, right. your dad owed me a lot of money. But that was like my mom, that was how my mom could like best protect us because she's really smart in that manner. And like, it. I'm just saying it must be like, I'm not like, must be great, but like, it must be such a, fascinating relationship and like how you guys work together. Talk,
2: you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, Melissa, because my parents were divorced and they haven't seen each other in 25 years before my mom Whoa. came down to help me with my dad's house. My dad lived in North Carolina and was very much a recluse and, you know, sick for a long time and ashamed of his physical condition and didn't leave the house. So it was just me helping him. No other family, no other, no new wife, like nothing. He's completely alone. But, um, I think that Bobby helped me do what Bobby does best, which is exactly what you might've even picked up on from just being on the show, which is that like, she has a way of looking at things that's really different than the way I look at things. And I think when we have people that we love in our lives that are like that, sometimes it can feel like, ugh. and sometimes even when it feels, ugh, you really need it. And like, yeah. So even in... You know, I wanted to be depressed for a long time, and she wouldn't quite let me. And that's good. And in hindsight, I appreciate that. And she was there for me. She helped, and she was a mom, and she was really strong about it. And it eventually led to us being able to really connect and do this together. And I had so much of a deeper appreciation for what she does. You know, I mean, she works with clients who have really lost everything. Like, and I don't, I don't think we need to compare losses. But I mean, when I think about you know, what some of those people must go through. It's it's really traumatic. And so I just had so much of a deeper respect for what she did. And I wanted to, I don't know, I wanted to get involved because I felt like I kind of understood it almost like when you grow up in a family business and you're like, all right, now I, I got a taste for this. And <laughs> I kind of want to do this with you. Well, I think well, we don't talk about grief enough. So that's why I love this podcast. And I
3: also think that I'm someone who, if it's the worst time in your life, I'm there. You know, and it's because I don't fear it. And I know that there's nothing I can I know I can't fix it. Yeah. And I think that people fear that, but like, I've just had a life that's had like a lot of cancer, a lot of deaths, a lot of afflictions and maybe some light tragedy, but nothing major, you know, in the tragic terms, but like, I don't run away from that stuff. And I think that talking about things more, like today I went to the farmer's market at Union Square and I've been going for a couple months and like seeing sort of like how there's more people around and then people are like, yay, we're back. And yeah, I feel like in light of COVID, but also in light of like where we are right now with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and like everything that's happening right now, like I'm like, we, I don't like this. (laughs) Like, yeah. Like I feel like we're grieving. I feel like we're actively grieving and I, And I, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have joy, but I'm like, I know there's some people who just came back to town. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. Well, I, they yeah. were at their second house, and now they're all like, "I got the last spring I, onion at I the know. farmer's
2: market," and I'm like, "Fuck yeah. you!" Exactly. I was grieving. Yeah. Or I was grieving. I wanted to ask you about this, Nelson. Now you bring it up because I was. This was a question that I had for you that I think is really interesting. Um, so you are um. Sorry, I'm looking at my notes. Can you just remind me what is your position exactly at uh, St. John's Bread and Life? I mean, none of us are doing what our positions are really there, but
3: I'm the rescue food coordinator there, and we're the largest emergency food provider in Brooklyn. So we're a soup kitchen and a food pantry. Right. So and- for the past three months, we've pivoted everything and focused on,
2: uh, you know, like pantry and, and food, which we always do, but just that really. Um, and then you know, just to your point, what you're just making is that um, you know this is in so many ways. This is this situation is so enormously complicated, and kind of like we were talking about before, everyone who is alive for the most part, except for you know obviously billionaires and stuff, but uh, is entitled to feel how they feel. It's hard. It's scary, and it has levels of varying actual real life damage for people. But if you feel something in your heart, that's your feeling, right? But at the yeah. same time. Um, it is in so many ways a class war and uh, a, a race war. I mean, it's terrible. It's insane what's happening. Well, it's also.
3: I don't want people to not like to not find joy in life. But let's be honest. This is like the exact definition of fair weather friends. You Absolutely, one hundred percent. And and it's like I don't. I don't know. Like you're like the weather gets warm and nothing, And all bets are off. Like I
2: don't. Absolutely. I don't know. Like well so I wanted to ask this of you though because you're working in this capacity yeah. every day with people who are grieving in a very specific way, right? With marginalized people and low income people and and people who can't eat on like afford to eat on their own. And uh, you know, then we're living in a city where you're we're seeing, you know, whether it's on Instagram or actually at the farmers market seeing people come back to town from their second upstate houses and then realizing and then hearing kind of, you know, that we're all in this together and it's, it feels like, I mean, that's not true. Um, and I just wanted to know how you intake the grief of like that you see every day from like a community of people who are deeply, deeply affected and deeply, deeply grieving and then exist and have somehow find compassion for other people who aren't. And where does that lie in your, in your heart and brain? Oh, that's a
3: light question.
2: Yeah, um, totally.
3: <laughs> I think some days are really heavy. Like sometimes I'm just like and I think that this is part about like going back to work while you're grieving. Like you're able to go through the motions um and do things. And then sometimes I just can't. And also like I'm not one-on-one. Like I I can't. That's the same question I wonder about like nurses and doctors, you know, for right for me and my brain right now, it's so much logistical my brain is involved in so many logistical things about moving food and how much food we're going to get and where we're going to put it and stuff like that. And I do have coworkers who have lost family, but I mean, I also feel like the people that we serve are the strongest people, you know, and in spite of, in spite of society's marginalization of them, you know?
4: Right.
3: And I think that, and I think that, you know, I have like a lot of people aren't sick and I'm just like, you're so strong. And I also think, I, I don't know why, um, you know, because we really our main, a lot of our guests are like have mental illnesses and drug addictions and don't have homes and things like that. It's not, and, but you know, a lot of them are, you know, families try and make ends meet and stuff like that. I don't know. People's strength is incredible. I agree. You know? yeah. And I think that we see this, we see this with all of the like, we see this with the African-Americans in this country and how they are, how how they wake up every day and deal with the bullshit that this country gives them, you know, and that it's not how how people are able to have like multifaceted lives. And I think- the problem is, is there's so many people who are protected and they don't understand that they're protected. And I think that there's so many people who think that they're progressive, but they're not. I I feel I deeply feel this in food. I feel like it's a, a club of people who are kind of like minded, which is the worst. Um, mm. And that they don't know how privileged they are and that they are propped up by systems that they in progressive terms don't agree with but will probably defend if things are taken away from them right you know like they're not willing to sacrifice but you know it's like it's like everyone trying to get i don't know i mean my mind works in all over but like all the cool people in food who got like venture capitalists to fund them, like David Chang and Christina Tosi and people like that. That money, the money from Hudson Yards, that came from a guy who threw a hundred thousand dollar a plate fundraiser for Donald Trump. Right. Why isn't it? Why is it more important to them to spread the whatever their food idea is instead of saying I'm not going to take your money because it's it doesn't align with my politics. Absolutely. And and I think the problem is, is like there's so many people who are so protected. And what's weird about this city is that we live so close to each other. Bread and life is in Bedsty. Bedsty wasn't gentrified. But in, bread and life started in 1982 when Bedsty had issues with AIDS and crack. And now the issue in Bedsty is gentrification. Right. And I think people Wasps. I think wasps are the problem, okay? Waspy people. I think like old money. I think white people. I think like upper middle class people trying to become rich, rich people trying to become wealthy, wealthy people trying to become super rich. They're all looking up and that they can live next door to someone and push people out and never see them because they don't matter. Absolutely. And that's part of the problem. But they'll like it if they like some natural wine, weird farmer. That's who matters. Totally. You know, I completely agree. And And I I think it's, I don't know, but I don't, don't but for me, like some days I'm just like, I don't want to talk to anyone. And then some days I need to see people and it's really restorative.
2: I know it's a very, it's a very interesting thing. And it actually brings me to the last thing I want to talk to you about, which is just a quote from an Instagram post that you wrote, (laughs) that you wrote. Um, (laughs) it It really affected me actually. And I've thought a lot about it. Um, And I would love to talk to you sometime, you know, off, off the recording just in life about this, because I've I've been challenging my brain to try to think about this concept a lot. And I have some ideas, of course, but um, you wrote, and part of this thing you wrote on Instagram, uh, what's it going to take to change this shit? People of privilege can't just acknowledge it. We have to sacrifice. Sacrifice means having to give something up, but often it means giving something up that you don't want to give up. If you can give it willingly, it's not sacrifice. It's just called giving. And I think that's one of the most poignant and kind of like, for me, brain changing things that anyone has said in a really long time. And it's really, really true. Oh,
3: thank you. Uh,
2: Yeah. And I think in this time, more than ever, like when I think folks with mostly really good intentions are trying to share a lot of information about either how to get through grief or how to help Black people, uh, how to end racism, how to gather funds for folks who need it, all these different things that we're all trying to educate ourselves about and again even if it doesn't come across right i think most times the intentions are good i think really focusing on that sentiment is like very 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 important and i think it actually is also very important when it comes to grief too um for sure right like because you know it, it, if like you really, let go yeah really i mean if you go is sacrifice
3: if you let go like if you hold on to something so tightly and you let go and you don't like where it goes you're never going to go back to that. But if you, and I mean, it's interesting because like you can sacrifice and you can give things, even if you feel like you don't have a lot, but all the little things add up. I mean, we've been working in a mutual aid system with GoFundmes for people's housing and healthcare crises for as long as GoFundMe has been made. But also when you start to realize that like you let go of something and you're not ruined by it, and then you can more freely participate. So maybe you sacrifice something and you're like, I don't know, rent's coming up, but I really got to give money for this to get, you know, to post bail for people or to do this, or I don't need to keep everything that's in my food basket. And then you realize it didn't ruin you. And the thing is, is like our society tells you that it will ruin you, that you have to keep it all. And so if you participate, and this is what community is based on, if you participate in a community that it's a it's a movement it's moving it's like the ocean it's back and forth then you will always be supported but if you're participating in something that will never give you back anything you know and that's like this this covid situation like i don't really care about restaurants i mean i care about restaurants but i don't care about restaurants because the people who have restaurants a lot of them are they going to lose their homes you know, are they going right. to be ruined by this? And by ruined, I mean, dead or homeless. Right. right. Or, and and like destabilized and isolated. And like what we've been talking about this whole time is like, isolation is the enemy because it makes you so vulnerable in a really dangerous way. Mm. They're probably not. Totally. They might lose a restaurant. You've right. lost a restaurant. I've lost Absolutely. A, a couple of restaurants. Yeah,
2: It's okay. You know what? It is okay. And I think. Again with like tying this thing about community that you said about sacrifice to grief it really is is a very similar sentiment so if you're out there listening how to kind of you know wrestle with big grief i think that's something to kind of to think about right it's like i think sacrifice and letting go go hand in hand and like realizing that like you know if you sacrifice certain feelings or things you're not willing to let go in the grieving process you probably won't die and if you won't die then you know But if you stay
3: really rigid, it's, you'll
2: just break, you know? Exactly. I've been that person. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Same. Um, Well, I have one more question that we always ask people at the end of each show, which is um, if you could have told your young self something, giving yourself one piece of advice when you're going through kind of your most tumultuous and hard time and grieving, what would it be?
3: That my grief mattered.
2: Hmm. Really, very beautiful. Um, I think yeah, it's in- sad,
3: but it's true.
2: Yeah, it is true, and I think it's important for people to hear that because it does matter. It really does, Melissa, well, I loved talking to you. It was really great. We haven't even gotten on so many other dead people. Don't worry, you
3: guys. If you can't book anyone,
2: I'm here. Okay, great. we'll have to you back for another episode. We'll Maybe a part two. Um, no, it was really great, and I, it's- you know. I, I just came to know you over the internet, which is strange. I normally, do, I don't meet a lot of like Instagram friends, but we have a mutual friend and Anna Dunn.
3: I know. Well, Anna Dunn's the best and that's the person who's yeah. who I know is working in mutual aid with the Service Workers Coalition and, and everything they write really opens the brain. It really opens my brain about what it is, what it is that we should be striving for.
2: I agree. I really, I really, really agree with that. We had them on um, the three of those guys for a, uh, for a mini episode that is airing on this feed and on Life's a Banquet feed. So if you guys are listening, definitely check that Service Workers Coalition episode out and learn about mutual
4: aid and helping your community. That's right. Yeah. Well, Well, Bobby,
3: great to talk
1: to you. You you. too.
4: Keep up your good work. It sounds amazing.
1: Yeah. Thank you you so much. We'll talk to you soon.
4: Okay, bye you guys. Bye.
1: Bye. Despite challenging circumstances, dairy farmers are working hard to make sure communities across the country have fresh nutritious food to keep us healthy during these uncertain times. It's more important than ever to eat, enjoy, and support real dairy. Want to help? Go to WisconsinCheese.com where you can order award-winning Wisconsin cheese Directly from Cheesemakers, to keep our family dairy farms in business for generations to come.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.